0: Welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, a podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm Monica. I'm David. This month, we're watching short films. And today, we are talking about two 1951 goofy George Geef shorts.
1: Hello, handsome.
0: Hello, fat. Who's fat? Who? You. First up. Tomorrow we diet. A rather rotund George Geef is seen digging in his refrigerator and comes out with a fabulous spread he sets before himself and devours. He heads to his bedroom where he admires himself in the mirror when suddenly his reflection, apparently with a mind of its own, says, Hello, fat. The reflection continues to make fun of George, who is in denial about his figure and points out his record as a student athlete. Not able to fit in his old suit, George heads to the tailor, who has to make his suit out of the canopy fabric overhanging the storefront. George then takes a taxi, which sags under his weight, and goes on to break a couple of stools and get on an elevator that can't seem to lift him. After finally getting on a scale, he realizes he is indeed overweight. Back at home, George pulls out a book about weight loss, and his reflection advises him he needs to eat less, or better yet, eat nothing to lose weight. George picks up a magazine to try to distract himself, but gets overwhelmed with all the pictures of food and begins to hallucinate food until he finally goes to bed. The next morning, he finds his refrigerator empty, all the contents eaten by his reflection. The next short we'll be talking about is Get Rich Quick. The average man is born with an inborn urge to gamble. Take the case of Mr. GG Geef. So begins the narrator, and we see George Gief napping at his work desk. He is then woken up and shown participating in various forms of betting and get-rich-quick schemes, including a pyramid club and a coin toss that ends in his co-worker winning part of George's lunch. In the next scene, George loses several rounds at a slot machine, only for the very next player to win big. Next, George wins at a dice game and then goes on to lose it all at the racetrack. He next joins a poker game, where he cleans out his competitors and successfully walks away with his winnings. He sneaks into his house, trying not to wake his wife, but she wakes up and scolds him for gambling. When she notices he's won, however, she begins planning for all the ways she's going to spend the money. David, what were your thoughts about today's shorts?
1: I enjoyed them. Uh, I I think I'd be hard pressed to find a, a Disney cartoon from this period that I didn't enjoy. I don't know that they're my favorites stylistically, um, but I think they're definitely entertaining. And and particularly the the George Gief period is uh, is uh, I, I think an interesting window into for these cartoons like 1951 and kind of what what life was like at that period.
0: Yeah, these are fascinating and I love all kinds of Disney cartoons, but I just think these are so, so unusual. Just for clarification, George Gief is kind of the pseudonym used by the Goofy character in these particular cartoons and in most of the cartoons that were made in the early 50s. When you watch these cartoons, you see that it's a Goofy cartoon. That's in the titles at the beginning, and you get to see Goofy's face. But in the cartoon itself, he's never called Goofy. He's only called George Deef. And it's this particular series of shorts that we're going to be talking about today. Before we get into more detail about that, I wanted to give a brief history of the Goofy character. He Officially, he was invented by Walt Disney, but you can kind of say that several people had a role in kind of making his character as we know it today. So there was Art Babbitt, the animator. Pinto Colvig, who was Goofy's original voice and did most of his voices up through the 1960s. And then also Jack Kinney, who was a director of many of the Goofy films in the 40s, especially. Um, So these four men all kind of contributed to making Goofy. He first appeared in 1932 as kind of an extra um, alongside Mickey Mouse. And then he was first named uh, Goofy in 1934. In these early years, it kind of went back and forth between Goofy and Dippy Dog but eventually settled on Goofy as a moniker. Later in the 30s, they did a lot of trio shorts where you had Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, and Goofy all together. But as time went on, they kind of realized that there it was easier to write gags for Donald Duck and Goofy. And um, they began to do more shorts with just Goofy and Donald Duck into the 40s. And then, of course, a lot of shorts where uh, it was just Goofy or just Donald Duck. And then we get into the 40s where we get some of Goofy's most popular cartoons, probably. And those are the how-to cartoons, where you see a lot of him experimenting with new hobbies or adventures. For example, how-to football is a really famous one. And what had actually happened here was that his voice actor Pinto Colvig and Walt Disney had kind of had a falling out. So he wasn't doing the voice acting at this time, and so they needed to find a way to make Goofy cartoons where he didn't have to talk as much. In the 1940s and during World War II, Donald Duck was kind of used to make uh, the very famous propaganda cartoons, and then Goofy was used to make these how-to cartoons that were pretty much like slapstick And Mickey Mouse was kind of set to the side, and he wasn't really animated in this period because they kind of wanted to keep him out of it because he was kind of their flagship cartoon character. As we get into the late 40s and into the 50s, we have the advent of the George Geef character that we'll talk about in a little bit more detail later. That character lasted until 1953, and then Goofy didn't have any cartoons for the rest of the 50s. In 1961, there was an award-winning short they made with Goofy that kind of brought back the George Geef character for that one cartoon. And then they had two educational films uh, in the mid-late 50s that were about driving. And then after that, you didn't have any Goofy cartoons for the most part throughout the 70s and 80s. And then in the 90s, you had a Goof Troop and a Goofy movie, which a lot of millennials will know. And now in the 2000s and the 2010s, um, he comes out in a lot of assorted kids shows, including Mickey Mouse Works, House of Mouse, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, and of course, the Kingdom Hearts video games. So I wonder, David, what your favorite Goofy iterations have been over the years?
1: uh so i'm especially partial i think to to goofy as he appeared like you you spoke about earlier in the um films in the late 30s where it was uh the the three of them donald goofy and mickey so i know we growing up we had a uh cassette tape that had one of those where they're like building a boat which is a classic and wonderful um and i think also that kind of those period of cartoons had to be kind of so focused on the visual element because there was so little dialogue um, as opposed to coming here where there's uh, by virtue of having the narration, we have a lot of spoken word in it. So I think like there are a lot of very clever visual gags, but I don't think they work quite as well. But so I'd say probably that period, but also the 90s goof troop, a goofy movie like that, that phase of goofy, just because that's kind of the phase I grew up with.
0: Yeah, and over the years, um, I didn't get into a lot of detail about this, but Goofy's appearance did change quite a bit. And also the way that they animated him, especially in the early years. When I talk about my sources at the end of the episode, I'll let you know a really good YouTube video you can check out that tracks all of Goofy's forms for the past however many years it's been, 80-something years. So to get into George Geef specifically, if you watch the George Geef cartoons, you can tell he's goofy, but especially in some of them, he's changed quite a lot. So he has either smaller ears or no ears. I've heard it said that Disney explained that, well, in the cartoons where he doesn't have any ears, actually they're just tied up under his hat. But there are cartoons where you can see him and he's not wearing a hat and he clearly has no ears. He's often missing the front teeth there are the visible front teeth. At least his eyes are kind of smaller and separated on his face. Um, he often has more human hands rather than the gloves that we're so used to him wearing in a lot of cartoons. His voice sounds more human. Um, and then he wears Everyman clothing, rather than his kind of signature, either overalls or the vest and the little kind of stretched out fedora. Um, In these cartoons, he wears a lot of suits. And these George Geek cartoons are also known as the Everyman cartoons, because he's supposed to be representing your everyday suburbanite male, basically. A lot of people I guess feel a little bit disturbed about the way he's represented in these cartoons. What did you think about that?
1: Uh yeah, it's it's um it's a little bit strange. I think it, especially towards uh like the final final scene of Get Rich Quick where they show like he comes home and his um his of course nagging housewife is yelling at him. And we don't We don't even see her face. She exists purely to be kind of a foil for him who like steals his money and everything. But you can see her hands and they're very distinctly human hands. Like when we were talking about earlier, I think these are very interesting cartoons in the sense of them being a relic from this time period. But like, they're not really, you don't get the kind of heartwarming sense from other periods of Disney cartoons. It is very ostracizing in that way.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Did uh did you I mean, how do you feel about this aesthetic?
0: It's definitely weird, but I don't find it ostracizing, I guess, because I these cartoons are so funny to me. And so we we're focusing on just a couple of the shorts, but I full disclosure, I think I watched literally all of them. <laughs> um and there's at least like twenty um George Geef cartoons that you can watch and i'm just like sitting there by myself laughing because <laughs> it's so clever and and like not that this is really not that this is really anything to go by but evidently uh the the disney company when they've been asked about this kind of strange goofy iteration the way they've explained it is that well this is just goofy playing a character like he's an actor <laughs> which I thought was interesting. Something that you notice about these cartoons is that not only is his appearance changed, but he's also uh smarter, right? And like you mentioned, David, he's shown with a human wife. You never get to see her face, but she's pretty clearly human. And then he has a son, which we didn't see in these two shorts, but The son is kind of some kind of critter, but he doesn't like he also doesn't have the obvious ears. Um, He's very human like something that started in the 40s with the how how to cartoons was all the other characters in the cartoon would also be goofies. So you have like are goofy, but then all the extras are also goofies. And they continued that in um, a lot of the cartoons from this era. And like you said, David, these cartoons also usually have a narrator. The George Keefe character was uh, Walt Disney's idea in the late 40s. So apparently, um, his reasoning behind this was that he thought that Goofy's character had been kind of diluted in the previous decades. Um, And he wanted to make some cartoons where, I guess, his character was a little bit more um, defined. And then he wanted to make him more relatable to suburban America. And there is an animation historian named um, Christopher P. Lehman, and his opinion of these cartoons is that Disney was basically making them in support of the conformity of the 1950s, um, even as the cartoons do kind of poke fun of it as well. And I wondered, so we kind of know this specifically about Walt Disney's decision making, but why do you think was there like a bigger reason they might have shifted Goofy from the slapstick of the 40s to this kind of everyday life, these everyday life storylines in the 1950s?
1: This is kind of just spitballing. I don't um, know for sure, but I guess kind of um, alluding to what you said earlier about Donald Duck being kind of the um i suppose the centerpiece the center character for a lot of the propaganda films and them kind of reeling Mickey Mouse in which uh, notably that's that's been a long standing practice of the the Disney company they're very very particular about when they use mickey mouse as something else you had mentioned how a goofy appears in the kingdom hearts series so does mickey mouse but he he was almost completely avoided in the first installment of that and started appearing more and more later on so they you know it's like they're very careful with that uh so i mean you know honestly it might have just been that walt disney wanted to do something different and like that was of the three, like Goofy would have been kind of the most logical character to use to implement in this kind of story. Because I think if you, you know, if you take this and say you maybe insert Donald Duck, I think it becomes a lot more farcical as opposed to, as you were saying, this idea of it it trying to uphold like conformity and like kind of a... a you know, single, like, monochromatic uh, lifestyle, if you want to be really cynical about it, then I think, like, Goofy is probably the right character because in some ways he's also a very, very empty canvas, right? Like, he kind of, like, what do we know about Goofy's character in general? He's genial, he's a little bit dumb, and he's a little bit clumsy, and that's kind of the extent of it. So you can really plaster a lot of different ideas and traits and stories onto something like that.
0: It's funny because you say that. And also, like I, I said a moment ago, Disney wanted to define Goofy's personality more, but I always felt like Goofy had a, a personality. Like he, he's like exactly what you said, genial and doofy and kind of, um, my general impression was that Donald Duck was the most popular character. So I wonder if that's part of the reason too like maybe they could have shoehorned Donald Duck into these kind of cartoons as well but just like goofy they would also have have had to transform his personality and from my what i read was the george geef and all goofy cartoons stopped after 1953 um through the rest of the 50s But the Donald Duck cartoons continued for longer because he was a more popular character. So I wonder if it wasn't also because, well, like, why mess with something that's working already? People already really like Donald Duck. I think he's also super popular in a lot of other countries as well.
1: Right. It kind of... um... I guess alluding to uh, to our previous episode about uh, Three Caballeros, right? And like the choice to use him in kind of, um, you know, America reaching to Latin America propaganda films um, is kind of relying on that idea that Donald Duck was a very popular character. Like Goofy doesn't appear in that, right?
0: Yeah, I, I've actually been reading recently. In the ether that Donald Duck has been just so popular overseas in so many different places. And even that his personality is a little bit different in the way he's represented in Europe and Latin America. Something else I was kind of thinking about was that part of the reason that they put Goofy into those how-to cartoons in the 40s was in order to distract people from the war and everything that was going on. So maybe it was by the 50s, they felt like, well, you know, we don't really need that distraction anymore. And what can we do to make it make him more relatable to what's going on now? And it seems a little bit more okay to make cartoons that are basically complaining about everyday life.
1: I do kind of wonder, though, like how my history education is severely lacking. Uh, do you know how, how intense like the public would have been feeling the cold war by this point?
0: Probably pretty intensely. There is also a goofy cartoon called cold war. I don't know if you saw that.
1: I, I did. Well, that's kind of why I was wondering. Cause you had mentioned this idea of kind of using, using goofy in these, in these like how to videos. And like, was this kind of a, a way of a, adapting that for like a new national stress in some way.
0: Right, like maybe if you just focus on what's going on in your day-to-day life in your neighborhood in suburban America, you can think about that rather than this uncertainty in the geopolitical world. And and, and I also think though that it would it's kind of a different issue to deal with because in World War 2 you had to deal like so many men were sent overseas to fight. I guess it was something that people felt maybe more personally, right? Whereas the Cold War was this more amorphous um although of course there were there were men off fighting in Korea as well during these years but but maybe like the impact of that wasn't as great. Um so I guess maybe they could have been just different ways of dealing with different geopolitical circumstances as they affected people in everyday life. Um, Before we continue, I actually wanted to ask you a question uh, before the break. We had mentioned that there was a goofy short called Cold War. I wondered if you happened to watch that
1: one. Oh, I did not.
0: Oh, okay. Because we were discussing, right, how these cartoons may have been a reaction to what was going on in the world at the time. If you watch the cartoon Cold War, the only thing that has anything to do with the Cold War really is the title, because it's about how George Geef catches a cold and how he deals with his cold. (laughs)
1: that's so funny to me (laughs) we had spoken previously i can't remember which episode but we had spoken about white telephone films and like propaganda in mussolini's italy and the idea that that propaganda took the form of kind of uh distraction right and and like melodrama about wealthy people to make, you know, impoverished people who are not being taken care of by their government. Sound familiar um, to make them kind of forget what was going on using that title? It strikes me as such a kind of brazen, almost like tongue in cheek use of that of that technique. Not that obviously 1950s, the U.S. Is, is it would be hard to compare that to fascist Italy, but that's certainly interesting. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's more you can dig into the cartoon, maybe some kind of symbolism or something, but I certainly didn't catch any. What I wanted to do now is get into the themes of these George Geef cartoons. And one thing that they deal a lot with is human vices. The two shorts that we watched for this, um, the first one dealt with food. Um, And I think it's really, really, really effective the way they portray him trying to go on a diet. And the only thing that he can think of is food, right? The very thing he can't have. And the, the, the narrator in the background is going, eat, 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 eat. <laughs> and he's just, you know, he's seeing in his curtains and his upholstery all these different, you know, scrambled eggs and, and bacon and watermelon and all these things. No, I just think, I'm like, oh, it's so realistic. Like, that that's exactly <laughs> how you feel when you want something that you shouldn't be having. One of the other shorts that we didn't watch for this, but um, is also worth a watch, is called No Smoking. It's from the same year, and it's this kind of similar setup where this this was actually would have been made in the time before um, people knew for sure that smoking was linked to to cancer but I guess people already kind of had an idea that it maybe wasn't very good for you or that it had a lot of um, bad effects like you know making you short of breath and all these other things
1: well, would that have also been? because I, I think preceding the the great revelation that, oh yeah, like to, tobacco gives you all kinds of cancer and lung cancer and all these terrible things, I'm pretty sure that there were long before that there was kind of this notion of it being kind of this dirty habit. So I wonder if that's that was kind of more what they were working from. I I haven't seen that short.
0: Yeah, it's it's that too. In the short they mention how, oh, you know, it it, it makes you short of breath and it they show pictures of these little cigarettes butts all over the place. It, it was, I guess, for a lot of people associated with being slovenly. But of course a lot of people smoked at the time, right? So it was a widespread habit. In that short, George Geefe tries to quit smoking, and it's a similar kind of setup as the Tomorrow We Diet cartoon, where um he's just going crazy because he can't get a cigarette and he <laughs> he, t- he tries to like steal cigars out of other people's hands and stuff. And um <laughs> Yeah, I think it's probably um very relatable. The other short that we saw for today's episode is about gambling. And um, he's not trying to quit gambling in this film, right? But it does show the ups and downs of, you know, winning big and then spending it all and then winning again. And then, of course, in the end, his wife makes off with all his money. I wondered if you could comment on these representations of Vice and what you think it says about the era or how we can relate to it even today.
1: I think what surprised me the most about the shorts was I expected them to be a lot more prescriptive and kind of have a a more traditional like public service announcement ending, right? Like I expected at the end of uh, the short where he goes on a diet that, oh, well, like there would be this nice wrap up and it's like, oh, he, you know, comes into life and he no longer has – the cravings to the same degree that he did and he's healthier, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it, it kind of just jokes about his like subconscious continuing to like ruin him. Um, so it seems a lot more focused on, on the actual like uh, mental and, and emotional experience of having to deal with something like that. And then in, in gambling, the ultimate lesson seems to be that like, women are terrible and will take your money right like gambling did not really turn out to be the vice there i don't i don't want to make any any statements that are too broad or sweeping but something that i i'm more accustomed to or at least i i would expect to see more in something like this we don't have the kind of natural arc with its like conclusion of of success right that's that's totally missing from these shorts so it does almost feel, as you had mentioned before, the idea that these are trying to uphold the status quo while kind of poking a little bit of fun at them. The films feel almost more like, oh, isn't that, you know, isn't that just how things are? Which I I think was really surprising.
0: Yeah. And I think For as much as you might, I don't mean you specifically, but as much as one might want to criticize the impulse behind these cartoons to, in support of conformity, and I I think that's legitimate, but I think what's also refreshing, though, is that they're not, like you said, prescriptive. They acknowledge that. Particularly with, you know, the the cartoons about eating and smoking, that overeating and smoking are vices, but they don't tell you what you're supposed to do. Although I also think, you know, um, in all of these cartoons, the main character is George Keefe, who is a stand-in for a suburban white American male. So, yeah, we are, we are I guess, supposed to be okay with whatever um, that particular
1: demographic
0: does, right?
1: Sure, sure.
0: Um, so so vices are a big part of these cartoons. And then the other big part are the pains of everyday life. You see these in a lot of these. So one of them is um, trying to quit all those vices. And then another pain that gets referenced quite a lot is the, the nagging, unappreciative, uncaring wife, which we saw in the Get Rich Quick cartoon. And Goofy's... Wife makes uh, several appearances in these George Geefe cartoons. And besides her being, you know, nagging and everything else, if you watch the Father's Day Off cartoon from 1953, you also get the impression that she's been having an affair. <laughs> with 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 uh, <laughs> with several other characters but they portray it in a very lighthearted way um and in the father's day off cartoon george geef is at home with george junior his son while his wife goes off and i don't know runs errands or something like that and the whole Stick is he is trying to take care of the house by himself and ha- is having a lot of trouble. And um, various characters show up at the front door to make deliveries. So there's the milkman and the dry cleaners, and somebody else I don't remember. But <laughs> when Goofy opens the door for like the milkman, the milkman kisses him. <laughs> 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 and like in 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 the in this cartoon, they they really he's still George Geefe, but he's portrayed more like the the goofy that we know from the earlier and later cartoons, where he has his buck teeth and he has his long ears and he acts goofy. So he just thinks it's really funny, and he's like, "Oh yeah, oh how nice they gave me a kiss," and then like <laughs> he looks forward to it. But so they present it in a really lighthearted way but um yeah mrs geef is not shown to be she's not shown very favorably i also wanted to mention a cartoon that i know both of us have seen many times and that we have talked about before called donald's diary um that's from 1954 and for the audience in this cartoon it's a donald and daisy um story where donald proposes to daisy but he falls asleep and dreams of their married life. And she turns into a horrible nag. He can't deal with his mother-in-law or, or her nephews. And like, there's a scene where he goes into the kitchen and sees Daisy with the curlers in her hair and a, and a cigarette hanging out of her mouth, just looking horrible. Um, and then at the end he wakes up from the dream. And then he like, run- isn't it? He runs off to join the French foreign legion.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> and He, he like, patrols the wall (laughs)
0: yeah i mean it's it's horribly misogynistic but also hilarious but like it's the same kind of it's it's the same kind of theme you're seeing in these george geef cartoons and i I guess because we do try to delve into this a, a, a little bit these kinds of issues these portrayals of wives in these ways they still happen, right? People still joke about when men get married, like, oh, you know, the ball and chain or whatever, or the end of your freedom, and all these things, and and there's all these jokes made about how, oh, women are the ones who want to get married, and men always want to avoid it. Um, but in actual fact, marriage, right, straight marriage. In general, benefits men a lot more than it benefits women, so it's a really frustrating way to portray marriage w- in light of the actual
1: facts so I think uh not to not to get us on a on too much of a tangent, but I think this is actually super interesting the way that that pop culture and in particular like American comedies portray that kind of like the marital relationship and kind of the misogyny in this context because i think like you were saying with the the short donald's diary the entire thing being about how like oh if he gets married his wife is going to be a nightmare to him and his life is going to be essentially over and everything's going to be terrible so he runs away from it. In some ways, it's not too dissimilar from like the Leave it to Beaver, Father Knows Best 50s sitcom model of marriage where it's like, Oh, the father who's this kind of calm, cool collected. I suppose, uh, Donald doesn't really fit that mold, <laughs> but, uh, uh, someone who is like overall rational and you are encouraged to, to sympathize with and empathize with. And like, he is, stuck with kind of this family that's like, oh, they're nice, but he has to give them guidance to avoid these pitfalls. And then many years later in, I believe it debuted in 89, we get the Simpsons, which was a kind of a a deliberate subversion of that trope, right? Where as opposed to having the the kind of saintly rational father, we have a dad who's just like completely a screw up and the mother is trying to like hold everything to together so we completely alter that dynamic and what i think is so interesting is is to extend that further that itself becomes a trope. And mm-hmm. so now we kind of have a, 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 a... I suppose, thing you know, things have changed since then, but we have a lot of material that came out in the 90s and, like, the 2000s that's about a goofball father and a mother who's holding things together. And that, that trope that uh, at one point was, like, subversive has become kind of the new misogynistic, like, well, guys, you know, we're just, like, goofy and we want to have fun. And, like, women are really the ones who have to hold it together which like is that really any better
0: yeah that's a big problem too um there shouldn't be this you you know you do see this a lot with memes especially like oh mothers are a certain type of special and they hold everything together and blah 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 it's like well but it shouldn't have to be that way to back up a little bit you had mentioned how uh you know donald duck I mean, he doesn't have a calm, collected personality. But the funny thing is, in that particular short, Donald's Diary, you know, we talk about how they change the personality of characters. His personality is pretty different in there. You don't hear him talking in his crazy, like, <laughs> voice, you know, like, I can't really <laughs> do it. But he doesn't, he doesn't do that that much in that cartoon. They really change his personality in order to really make Daisy look... Um, especially oppressive. So that's just super interesting the way that works out, I think.
1: Speaking of the kind of inversion of tropes I had mentioned before with The Simpsons, uh, we actually see that exact same dynamic with Donald and Daisy Shift, where she appeared in shorts like this and was kind of, you know, the nag or... Like, similarly, she was, in some, she was kind of like the female Donald Duck, and she got crazy, right? And then when we come to the Kingdom Hearts series, at least in the first game, she appears and is the calm, rational one who is eloquent and well-spoken and is trying to, like, figure out a problem. And, like, Donald is kind of the goofball mess up like nuts character that he's always been so they like this particular character also followed that that through line
0: i also think that throughout the cartoons that they're featured in both Minnie mouse and daisy duck at various times get shown to be the like slightly petulant perpetually unsatisfied girlfriends of Donald and Mickey, you know, they're, they're always feeling slighted by something that Donald or Mickey didn't do right. Um, and everybody knows Donald's crazy. So maybe, maybe <laughs> that, that that's a little bit more fair, but with, with Mickey, I feel like you're always made to feel bad for him that he can't make Minnie happy. Um, but those are just other subtle ways that, that you can see that these cartoons, um, are perpetuating, I guess what would you call it? The what would you call it?
1: The monoculture.
0: The monoculture? Sure. I don't know. It's something it's something um it's really something interesting to think about, which is why we have this podcast. Um I still love all these cartoons, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> They're all freaking hilarious. <laughs> But we were talking about the pains of everyday life that uh, that appear in the George Geefe cartoon. So another one is another one is the annoying kid who you very responsibly take care of anyway. Um, You can see that in shorts like Fathers Are People, which is where George Geefe becomes a father um, and Teachers Are People, where George Geefe plays a teacher and he has a class of unruly students. I think mo- like many of us can relate to annoying children um, or taking <laughs> care of annoying children. <clears throat> Myself having been a teacher in a former life. Uh, <laughs> and and then uh, I did mention earlier the cold war short, which was about dealing with a head cold. I'm very familiar to everybody. And then uh, there was another one, which uh, David, if you didn't see this, you should watch this. It's called how to sleep. Very funny. And it's just about how George Keefe can't sleep and this like scientist who's doing experiments to try to figure out how to get him to fall asleep. <laughs> I just love how so many of these films really deal with adult issues, but I know I was watching them when I was a little kid, finding them hilarious and fortunately not being at the da- at the age where I had to deal with most of this stuff, you know? Sure. <laughs> As we've been talking about, a big part of these cartoons is conformity. And you see that a lot with episodes that focus on hobbies. So some examples are there's an episode about photography. There's an episode, You, I know you've seen this because um, it's called Lying Down. It's where Goofy goes into the forest and gets a tree to plant in his backyard and there's a lion in the tree. <sighs>
1: yes oh my god i haven't seen that in so long that's uh, sorry <laughs> i love that short
0: <laughs> that one is really funny um and um there's another really good one about dancing and these were all kind of hobbies that people were getting into in the 50s and then um, In 1961, so I had mentioned earlier that George Geef those cartoons kind of ended in 1953 and that there was a gap of time where there were no Goofy cartoons. And then in 1961, they came out with one short called Aquamania. In Aquamania, Goofy was referred to as Mr. X, but his character was pretty similar to the George Geef characters. And the hobby this time is boating. And he and his son, George Jr., um, drive out to the lake with uh, with their boat, and they join this traffic jam of all these other suburbanites with their boats. Um, and then they accidentally get into a boat race with an octopus. Um, <laughs> something that Christopher P. Lehman, the animation historian I mentioned earlier, points out is that Aquamania, since it came out um, just about ten years later after the other after the George Geef cartoons, he analyzed this cartoon is just a sign of disney just more of a sign that they were behind conformity and not really changing with the times because it was pretty much in the same vein as the earlier cartoons although there were certain advances in technology in terms of the animation itself um, and the cartoon did win an award it it's a really cute cartoon So there are hobbies. And then there's other things that you see represented in these cartoons that emphasize the conformity of suburban life, especially driving. So there's a cartoon from 1950 called Motor Mania that shows George Geef. I think he's actually not called George Geef in that cartoon has a different name but it's the same kind of character and he has a, basically a jekyll and a hyde personality where jekyll is the pedestrian and hyde is the motorist and he's like a driver with the worst road rage and, and then also finally what gets featured in so many of these shorts is the drudgery of working an office job which clearly has not changed in the 70 or whatever years it's been since that time what I wanted to talk about now is we've spoken quite a bit on this podcast about what can be considered children's media. And I don't know, first of all, whether you would consider these George Geef cartoons as children's media, or whether we just think of them that way because they are cartoons. And then also in that vein, do you know of any more modern children's media that acknowledges adult issues the way that these cartoons do? Well, I think
1: it's kind of hard to say because so much of this, like you said, hinges on what precisely we mean when we say like children's entertainment, children's media, how we define this. So like the George Geef cartoons, I would say they're they children's media just by by their nature, by the way that they're constructed. Because one of one of the things I didn't mention that surprised me so much about this viewing, and I guess it had been a little while since I'd sat and really paid attention to this era of uh, uh, Disney cartoons, is like just how many ideas they burn per second, right? Like they're constantly. Things happening visually. There are all these sight gags going on and they last half a second and then they move on and it's all very intricate and fast paced. And I think that's something that is kind of ready made to hold uh, children's attention, right? Because like children, you know, typically like kind of stimulus that is very hyperactive. There's not like there's not a tremendous amount of patience there. And so I think in that way they are inherently children's cartoons just with this kind of this extra level that again adults and and just you know perhaps older like teenagers will be kind of clued in on what it is that they're actually talking about uh as far as children's media now that that acknowledges adult issues I think it's more difficult to say precisely because this is still kind of a hot topic. I guess it won't be as much whenever this episode is released, but Netflix recently reacquired uh the rights to to exhibit Avatar: The Last Airbender on their platform. And that's got like a lot of really complicated themes uh about like about war and like spirituality and personal growth and the value of like personal relationships and it actually does a really good job of going in depth on those things but the question is like what at what age what age of children will enjoy this uh i suppose a more appropriate example would be adventure time which was like a smash hit and you know created a huge fan base and John DiMaggio who's one of the voice actors on on that series he likened it to the uh like the yellow submarine from the Beatles and like those kind of psychedelic cartoons where I think they're like I had said before there's kind of a lot going on visually to keep children's attention but there's also a lot of like subversive and like complicated elements there so I don't, I, I guess relatively recently, I think this is still happening, but also the media landscape has changed so much. It's hard to create really direct comparisons, partially also because we don't, I suppose they exist on YouTube, but like animated shorts, particularly in this form are not so much of a thing anymore.
0: I was thinking, though, norms about what's appropriate for children have changed over time. And also just general social practice has changed over time. So I can't I can't imagine making a cartoon for kids today about smoking, even if it's about quitting smoking. Right. Or about gambling. And I know that in the 50s people didn't know the very very serious consequences of smoking that we know today so that's one issue but i i i thought well gambling that was in that's it, hasn't that always been inappropriate for kids and that's kind of why i wondered is this really kids media you know or is it just that back then people weren't so sensitive about what you were allowed to show to children
1: you know, if I had to guess, I'd probably say the latter. Because I, I think every time, every time we go back and and view media, not just cartoons, but like media that was once considered more appropriate for kids, I think it's always kind of a shocker. Like, wow, this was like they really let kids watch this. That seems insane, right?
0: Um, and also we didn't really, we didn't really get into this, but um. Just like I mean, I kind of because when I was a kid, I remember watching these really old cartoons on the Disney Channel. So this would have been in the early mid 90s. Um, And I don't know that they would have aired the particular episodes that we watched today because they're, you know, quote unquote, inappropriate for children in these times. And also, um, maybe not so much in the '90s, but but certainly now the "Tomorrow We Eat" episode is, to say the least, very negative about body image, which is not <laughs> which is not something you're supposed to be these days.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think honestly, I like there were a lot of jokes in that that I appreciated, but I think in some ways it was also kind of a marker of of some degree of progress because I, I think it it was. I suppose it did. There was still kind of that treatment of like, oh, isn't this hard? Isn't this, it's rough and everything. But like, now that we're in a point where we're talking about, like the most obvious comparison would be fat shaming, right? And just like, oh, we, we don't, at one point it was like, fine- this is to just kind of say it's like oh well fat bodies are unattractive in the end but like now we're at a point where it's like well kind of you know other people's bodies are not really your business this is a bizarre statement to make perhaps this is a little bit more of a stretch but I think when we live in a period when we're more aware of things like gender dysphoria I think the idea of having a character who's looking in the mirror and is like disgusted by themselves and having you know, again, having a cartoon that's kind of making fun of that, that's maybe not as funny now or, like, you know, it's not really that cool because we understand that there are a bunch of – there are trans people who have that experience, who have the experience of gender dysphoria, and, like, it's painful and dangerous, and the treatment is, like, considered highly controversial by transphobes. Uh, To your point, like, we have – kind of changed pretty dramatically from when that episode came out. And I don't don't know, you know, it, it seems in a lot of ways for the better.
0: One of the unintentionally refreshing things about that short, though, was for as much as all these cartoons portray women in a very misogynistic way, it was refreshing to have a portrayal of a man who was upset about his weight, you know, not that, you know, having issues with your weight isn't a can't be a problem for anybody. But um, just the extent to the to which the emphasis um, is usually on women being fat or whatever, that aspect of it was refreshing to me.
1: But isn't that kind of a like spread the misery attitude, right?
0: <laughs> it is, but I mean, like for me, it made it made the cartoon. Like if it, if it had been a, a female character in that position, I would have felt maybe more uncomfortable with it. Although, like I don't know, this is getting super super off topic, but um, there I think there there was a book that came out recently by a man who had. He wrote about his experience with weight loss and how how in a society where we're focused so much on women, women and their body image, how it was kind of difficult to deal with that as a man because there's less support out there. So I I think, you know, a lot of times male characters are who who are overweight are played for laughs and that kind of thing.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, I agree with you. I think if if this had been a female character in that short, it would have been intensely uncomfortable to watch because of, again, the context and like the history of of body shaming women in this country. But yeah, I I do. You know, in some sense, it's still like I feel like it's a little darker uh, than I, I would have thought it was even a few years ago.
0: Maybe the thing is, though, at the time, that was this was the only way that they felt like they could deal with it with having those feelings. Right. Because notoriously, men are not supposed to emote. Men are not supposed to really feel self-conscious about the way they look. Right. Those are all feminine things, quote unquote. So I could imagine, you know, maybe some of the creators of that cartoon being overweight themselves. And how how could they express the frustration that they felt or the discomfort with their body image w- within the confines of the expectations for masculinity at the time? you know?
1: that's still very sad it, it
0: is sad <laughs> it's it's it, It's totally sad, but I think you know, considering that these cartoons they put the the white male suburbanite middle class at the center of everything, it's really you, you got to take the way that they represent an experience with something as a maybe true representation of what they felt like, you know?
1: Oh, sure, sure. And I mean, uh, like you were saying at the beginning of the episode, I think this is part of the reason these shorts are so interesting, Uh, especially in the context of, like, them upholding the status quo. Is like, this is a really interesting reflection of what would have been considered the status quo, right? Like, what did society look like? What were the expectations of Men, what were the assumptions about women, et cetera, et cetera. hmm yeah.
0: The last thing that I wanted to ask is, what kind of media today do you think are most similar in terms of their depiction of everyday life for the quote-unquote average American?
1: I don't really know that we have like an equivalent. I think we'll still have sitcoms pretty frequently that that deal in in maybe a, an elevated or abstracted way, but deal with kind of some of the frustrations of life for who are perceived to be the normal audience, right? So I think that's still kind of a thing, but I don't know that media is that interested in that anymore because we have turned so heavily to to kind of all of us being content producers right so like the film eighth grade and how the protagonist in that the eighth grade girl how she makes like youtube videos and this idea that like that's that's the story of a lot of kids now is that they are they are content creators as well all of us are constantly producing things like about ourselves about other things that i don't i don't know how much room there is for like what does day-to-day life look like and really examining that because we're already we're already covering that again through youtube videos your favorite youtuber there's a podcast et cetera, et cetera.
0: i guess it's more difficult to create something that you think is broadly representative of americans because not only has this country become more diverse we're also or at least we should be now more aware of the diversity where there was no concern for that at the time that these cartoons were made
1: sure yeah cuz i mean to your point we have more of a conception that there is not a single experience in this country so it's it's kind of it's kind of almost an absurd idea to try and create something like that now
0: well, I guess that kind of does it for us. Do you have any final thoughts about our topic today?
1: One thing I wanted to get into that we didn't mention too much, but was uh, actually the specifics of the animation here. Um, and I wanted to refer back to our episode on Fantastic Planet that we did uh, however many weeks ago. Um, and I think it's really interesting when you view these shorts in the context of um, the director of that film uh Lalu, he spoke of kind of the American tendency to focus on motion in animation, the European tendency to focus on graphics. And I think it's really interesting actually going and viewing a Disney cartoon like this from this period, because we have all the kind of hallmarks of like perhaps uh, you know, a bunch of scenes that have more or less neutral backgrounds or essentially wallpaper where the focus is on uh George Geef, right, and his facial expressions. I remember in particular the background during some of the gambling scenes, in which it was it was very clear that like Geef was animated and like the dice were animated, but the the kind of peripheral other gamblers there were not. They were part of the background and they were very kind of simplistically drawn. Um, so. I think again I think it's really interesting watching, you know, seeing something like Fantastic Planet and coming here and seeing how just drastically different what the two pieces are trying to accomplish is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And something I didn't really get into but that I read about when I was reading about the history of Goofy was how much their animation techniques changed in those early years in the 30s. Um so I was reading about Uh, a principle in animation called squash and stretch it's basically where when when you move something in animation you need to show that it's retaining the same volume even though that volume is distributed in different ways a popular example if you look up squash and stretch on wikipedia is you'll see a little picture comparing one that shows squash and stretch and the other one that doesn't And you see a bouncing ball and the one without squash and stretch, there's just a round ball that you see in motion that goes down to a table and then bounces back up. And the ball looks exactly the same through the whole process. But in the picture that shows squash and stretch, the ball, when it's coming down, it's perfectly round. But then when it hits the table, it compresses. So it gets a little bit wider, but a little bit shorter the way something naturally would at least a little bit in real life and it maintains the same volume and then it spreads out into its normal dimensions when it lifts back up and when you animate things they look a lot more natural if you show that redistribution of volume but you keep the volume of the object or character the same so if you look at the really early Disney cartoons, you'll see that they don't employ that. So when the characters move, they look like they're just stretching and not squashing. So they're not, uh, they're not maintaining their same volume. So they don't look as natural. But once they start employing that animation technique, they look more realistic. They look like they're actually holding weight and exhibiting force in the animation. Um, and I just think that's, uh, really indicative of how much focus animators at Disney were putting on movement well I'd like to thank my sources today earlier I mentioned a YouTube video that shows the evolution of Goofy Um, you can find that at Dave Lee down under evolution of Goofy over 87 years explained Um, all these sources will be in the show notes if you want to check them out I also referred to Christopher P. Lehman's um, American animated cartoons of the Vietnam era, a study of social commentary in films and television programs, 1961 to 1973. Uh, also, TVtropes.com and Wikipedia, as per the use. If you want to check us out on social media, we're, uh, we're maybe today matinee on Facebook. And Instagram, we're at Mayday Matinee on Twitter. You can contribute to our podcast on Patreon, just just search Maybe Today Matinee, and our email is maybe today matinee at gmail.com. Check in next week for two David Lynch shorts, 1967's Six Men Getting Sick Six Times, and 1970s The Grandmother. I'm Monica. I'm David. And this is Maybe Today Matinee.